LGBTQ Plus podcast. My name is Shane Filcher. I use all pronouns, and I am the executive director of the LGBTQ Bar Association and Foundation of Greater New York. This is the January 2023 Law Notes episode of the podcast, and I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Emeritus Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of Legal's LGBTQ Plus Law Notes. Law Notes is the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments both in the United States and abroad affecting LGBTQ plus people. I want to remind our listeners that the views expressed on our podcast are not an appropriate substitute for legal advice and may or may not reflect the views of the Bar Association and or its foundation. This month, we have some exciting updates on cases we've been previously covering with our audience, an upcoming circuit split that may or may not reach its way to the Supreme Court, and we want to set aside some time to thank a very special contributor to Law Notes who's been active over the years. Professor Leonard, thank you for joining us. It's great to be here with you, Shane. So let's start off the new year with some good news. Can you tell us what happened over the holiday break with the Yeshiva case? Okay, the Yeshiva case, which we've been following uh, ever since the uh, decision last June by uh, Justice Kotler, New York Supreme Court in New York County, that uh, Yeshiva University must immediately recognize the YU Pride Alliance because uh, she found that uh, Yeshiva was not exempt from complying with the New York City Human Rights Law under which they have been sued. The, uh, the Pride Alliance has been trying to get recognition for many years. Uh, the university has refused, even though at its three graduate schools, there are LGBT student groups that are formally recognized and that are allowed to meet on campus, carry out activities. Uh, Yeshiva says that, uh, first of all, they don't have to comply with the New York State City Human Rights Law. This case was brought under the City Human Rights Law, that they should be treated as a religious organization which should be considered as a distinctly private and therefore exempt. And furthermore, that uh, they should have a constitutional right under the First Amendment. They invoked uh, what is uh, sometimes referred to as the uh, church autonomy doctrine. And uh, they also are just in, in invoking the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Uh, and. They claimed that uh, the city has no compelling reason to require them to recognize this student group. So Justice Kotler rejected all their arguments and she uh, issued an order, a preliminary injunction that required them to recognize. Uh, they refused to recognize the Pride Alliance. They, uh, filed motions to stay. They asked the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene and the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, you know, why don't you go through the normal process and appeal this within the New York state court system, which is where this is pending. So they did file an appeal to the appellate division and they asked for expedited consideration and the appellate division agreed. So our big development now is the appellate division issued its decision on December 15th. They affirmed Justice Kotler on every point on the most significant point, because the, the human rights law does exempt religious corporations from complying with the anti-discrimination provisions. And Yeshiva says, we are the country's largest Orthodox Jewish university. How can we not be exempt uh, as a religious organization? 
uh, but Justice Cotler said, well, first we have to read the statute and then we have to read your corporate charter uh, to determine whether you qualify as a religious corporation incorporated under either the education law or the religious corporation law. And it seems that yeshiva is incorporated not under the religious corporation law, but under the education law. And that its charter is framed in such a way as to identify it as primarily and exclusively an educational institution, uh, not a religious organization. In fact, uh, from, from reading the, the charter, uh, at least as it's quoted in these court opinions, it sounds like uh, you'd have to have outside knowledge to know that it's a Jewish organization. It, it seems that Yeshiva University grew out of a rabbinical seminary founded in the 19th century. And many decades ago, they decided to restructure the organization and incorporate the seminary separately and incorporate the university separately, partly because they uh, had adopted a full undergraduate program uh, with degrees and majors in all different disciplines, not just religion. They had established graduate schools like a law school and a school of social work, medical school, and they decided to incorporate separately, partly so that they would, could qualify for government funding. A religious corporation uh, has a struggle to get government funding, although the Supreme Court has been making it easier and easier for religious organizations to get government funding over the last few terms. But at the time this corporate reorganization took place, that was clearly one of the aspects that they wanted to get some of the money that's available to educational institutions in New York. And in fact, it's, it's interesting, we're recording this on the 12th of January and on the 11th, the New York Times had a big article on its website, which is in the print paper today about Yeshiva getting lots of money from New York, getting lots of government money and questions being raised. And there are a lot of references in this article to this lawsuit, questions being raised because Yeshiva is claiming on the one hand, that they're entitled to get all this government money, on the other hand, that they're a religious organization and they should be exempt from complying with the New York City human rights law. So the uh, the court, uh, basically echoing uh, Justice Cotler's opinion, said, uh, yeah, Yeshiva is a secular, non-sectarian institution. They call themselves informally a, uh, a Jewish university. But for purposes of their corporate charter, they say they are exclusively an institute of higher education. And to be a religious corporation, even a religious corporation incorporated under the education law, you have to fulfill the definition of a religious corporation in the human rights law. And that's an organization that's formed for the purpose of providing religious services to its members, leading prayer, instructing on theology and stuff like that. But uh, yeshiva, doesn't really fit into that definition. And turning to the First Amendment arguments, they said, well, under Supreme Court precedents, uh, Employment Division versus Smith, which still hasn't been overruled, a religiously neutral law of general application does not have exceptions for individuals or organizations that would incidentally be affected in their free exercise of religion by having to comply with the law. 
and yeshiva argued pretty strenuously. They, they said, well, there are all kinds of exceptions and exemptions in the human rights law, so it's not a law of general application. They're trying to build on the Supreme Court's Fulton versus City of Philadelphia decision from the previous Supreme Court term. But uh, the, the court said, well, these are not discretionary. These are not discretionary exceptions. These are exceptions written into the statute, and none of them relate to public accommodations and sexual orientation. Uh, there are exceptions with respect to age. For example, a movie theater can restrict certain uh, movies to people uh, above a certain age. That These are for adults. Uh, there, there are various other exceptions that are built into the law, but that doesn't make it not a law of general application when we're speaking specifically about the ban on sexual orientation by places of public accommodation. So they said, this is not subject to strict scrutiny here under Employment Division versus Smith, as long as the state has a rational basis and certainly a substantial reason for uh, requiring a non-discrimination. And we think that the state's uh, interest here in avoiding discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity, since we're talking about an LGBTQ organization, that, that that's enough. It's rational. And that in fact, in uh, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, uh, the Supreme Court commented that it is a commonplace and accepted that governments can ban discrimination in places of public accommodation with respect to goods and services. And education as a service and being able to conduct a student organization on campus is one of the aspects of, of being part of the university community. And so the first department affirms. And what does Yeshiva do next? Well, it's a unanimous affirmance by a panel. I think it was a four judge panel. Uh, unanimous affirmance, in fact, I think it was a procurium opinion. <laughs> There's no dissent, which means they don't have an automatic right to appeal to the Court of Appeals. They have to apply for permission. Uh, will the Court of Appeals take this case? We don't know. If the Court of Appeals takes the case and reverses the appellate division, YU Pride Alliance would probably uh, appeal to the US Supreme Court, unless they decide that it's a foregone conclusion that they would lose. And this is where Yeshiva's attempt to enlist the Supreme Court to stay Justice Kotler's order much earlier, in fact, before the beginning of the Supreme Court term, it, it was unsuccessful, but by a five to four vote of the court. And the dissenters, uh, in an opinion by Justice Alito, that appears on the court's orders docket, not, it's not an opinion, it's part of a, an argued opinion by the court, because the majority of the court said, you're premature asking us to intervene in what is now a case pending in state court. You haven't appealed it yet. It's not a final judgment. It was just a preliminary injunction. It would be an interlocutory appeal from state. Justice Alito, we, we all know that under the First Amendment, Yeshiva has a right now to recognize this group. They already have four votes to grant cert. That's all you need to grant cert. Uh, whether they can pick up a fifth vote uh, to reverse New York court's interpretation of the First Amendment would be a different story. So we'll have to see what happens. This is a continuing story, and uh, Yeshiva is unlikely to, uh, to cave immediately at this point uh, with the appellate division. I haven't heard anything about uh, whether they're appealing to the Court of Appeals, but I think it's likely.
that they would appeal to the Court of Appeals. But it's a it's a victory at this point. It's certainly a victory. And if anything happens between now the time and recording and when the podcast is uploaded to our membership, we'll be sure to release that update in the episode description as well. So thank you for letting us know the latest and greatest what's going on with Yeshiva. Hopefully this is a permanent victory, but I'm hearing what you're saying that we may be continuing on with this case just a little bit longer. So we look forward to continuing to follow that with you this year. Next, we've got some interesting transgender youth cases going on in a variety of circuits across the country. Could we start off with looking at the newly formed 11th versus 4th circuit splits on transgender youth having access to the appropriate restrooms in school? Yeah, this is a this is a pretty big deal because over the past several years, there's been a fair amount of litigation in the federal courts over whether uh, public schools are required under either the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment or under Title IX of the Education Amendment of 1972 to allow transgender students to use the restrooms consistent with their gender identity. And we're not talking about people just who are uh, diagnosed with gender dysphoria. We're talking about people who have transitioned to the extent that they are living consistent with their uh, with their gender. They're uh, grooming, dressing, using names, many of them getting new birth certificates, some undergoing hormone therapy. When we're talking about uh, public school students, uh, we're usually talking about people who aren't old enough yet to qualify for surgical transition, but in every other way, uh, transitioning. So we have this case out of uh, Florida, St. John's County, Florida. Drew Adams enrolled in the St. John's County Schools for the fourth grade, probably, I would estimate, probably about nine or 10 years old. So probably moved into St. John's County from somewhere else and was registered. And at the time, Drew Adams was identified as a girl based on a birth certificate and had not yet identified, uh, well, actually had identified as a boy in his family but wasn't yet presenting himself uh, in, at school. So uh, when he enrolled in the district, he was enrolled as a girl under his, uh, his birth name. And over the course of time, transitioned. Uh, and by the time uh, Drew was ready for middle school, he had a new birth certificate designating him as male. He had a legal name change. He was grooming, dressing as a boy, had started on hormone treatment, and wanted to use the boys' restrooms at the middle school, and did for several weeks until some girls complained to the administration that there was a girl who was going into the men's room, the boys' room. This is weird. No boys were complaining. No parents were rising up in wrath or anything like that. There was no big deal. There was no problem. It's just a bunch of girls told the administration, did you know that there's a, a girl who's using the boys' room? And the administrators uh, hauled them in and said, you can't do that. Our rule, and at this point, I think it was somewhat of an informal rule, but our rule is that restroom use is based on biological sex. Now, Drew 
Adams had been addressed as a boy by his teachers, by his classmates, was dressing and grooming as a boy, was in the midst of transition, and didn't like this. They, they said, there are only two kinds of restrooms you can use at the school. You can use the girls' restrooms. And that would be quite alarming to see a boy walking into the girls' restrooms. Or you can use the gender-neutral restrooms, which we have a few of at your school. But of course, as is, is frequently the case in, in these cases, uh, the gender-neutral restrooms are not conveniently located in such a way you can take a quick restroom break between classes and things like that. Uh, and in addition, as Drew testified, he said it was like every time he had to go to the restroom, it was humiliating. He had to walk past the boys' room, way off searching for the gender-neutral room, which might be occupied. It was usually a single-seater type thing. So it might be occupied and I'd have to wait. And he said it was humiliating. It was sort of like outing him that he can't walk into the boys' restroom. And so eventually he filed suit. The lawsuit was filed in uh, 2017 and in uh, Federal District Court, Middle District of Florida before District Judge Timothy Corrigan, who was a George W. Bush appointee. And Judge Corrigan held that this was a violation of his equal protection rights and his Title IX rights to not allow him to use that restroom. After a three-day trial with plenty of expert testimony, including they had, uh, they had administrators come in from other school districts that allowed transgender students to use the restroom consistent with their gender identity, and they came in and they testified. They said, there's no problem. It works out fine. Other students are not disturbed. Uh, the transgender students are uh, very private when they go in there. I mean, if you're talking about a transgender boy, not going to use the urinal. It's going to go into the stall. And uh, so the privacy issues that the uh, St. John's people were raising, saying, oh, we're protecting the privacy of the other boys from having a girl in the restroom. And the answer was, well, Drew isn't a girl. Drew is a boy. The state of Florida now recognizes Drew as a boy. It seems the school district itself when this became an issue that was uh, attaining public attention. Uh, and remember the Obama administration in 2016 actually sent out a dear colleague letter from the education department to all the schools in the country about what you're expected to do with respect to transgender students. And one of the things they said was respect their names, respect their pronouns, treat them uh, consistent with their gender identity and allow them to participate in school activities and use school facilities consistent with that. Uh, so they set up a task force and they did a study and they decided they could go along with the names and the pronouns and everything else like that. But they said, once someone has enrolled in our school district and identified as a particular sex, that's their sex. We don't recognize a change for purposes of restrooms and locker rooms and things like that. So he was instructed this and the judge said that violates his rights. And so uh, the judge gave an injunction. The opinion came out in 2018. So Drew was still enrolled and I was in the high school. And the school district appealed to the 11th circuit and panel voted two to one in favor of Drew and against the school. Uh, the dissenter was the chief judge of the 11th Circuit, William Pryor Jr. And he 
kept the mandate from the panel decision from going out and basically coerced the other members of the panel to agree to reconsider their opinion. One of his arguments was that uh, there was no existing precedent as to whether Title IX covered gender identity discrimination in the 11th Circuit. And there was precedent that for equal protection purposes, gender identity discrimination would be uh, given heightened scrutiny as a form of sex discrimination. But this is all before Bostock, of course, the first panel decision. Uh, and the first, first panel decision, well, there were actually two panel decisions. There was the first panel decision, then there was a second panel decision. The second panel decision came out a year after the first panel decision. And the second panel decision went the same way, two to one with prior dissenting. But this time it ruled only on the constitutional basis. It didn't take on the title on issue. But again, Judge Pryor, uh, I'm assuming he was the one that called for on bank or maybe it was St. John's that filed the motion for on bank. Any judge of the circuit could ask the, for on bank consideration. And if you do the math in the 11th circuit at the time, when it was announced that the case would go on bank, which automatically vacates the panel decision. There were 12 active judges, uh, but one of the active judges, uh, Judge Beverly Martin, who was the author of the two panel decisions, an Obama appointee, she decided to take senior status and retire. So there were only 11 active judges by the time the on-bank uh, argument was heard and this opinion went out. So there are 11 judges. Six of the 11 are Trump appointees. Uh, Chief Judge Pryor is a George W. Bush appointee. So that's the seven Republican appointees out of the 11, leaving four. That is a Clinton appointee and three Obama appointees. <laughs> and so the uh, on-bank reversed Judge Corrigan, and of course, the panel decisions uh, were effectively reversed, uh, issuing a new decision by a seven to four vote. And uh, Judge Barbara Lagoa wrote the opinion for the majority. And this opens up a split, a circuit split, because we have opinions from the Fourth Circuit, the, the Grimm case, and the Seventh Circuit, the Whitaker case, the earliest of these cases from 2017, holding that the Constitution and Title IX are violated by refusing to allow a transgender boy to use the boys' restroom. These were both cases that involved transgender boys, so it's like directly on point. And by now, of course, it's probably moot. I think it's it's likely that by now Drew Adams has graduated from school. I don't know that for sure. The court doesn't mention it. Uh, if he did graduate from school, then of course the injunction stuff might be moot because Judge Corkin's injunction was narrowly focused on Drew Adams. It was not an injunction requiring the school to change its overall policy. It was an injunction requiring them to allow him to use the boys' restrooms. And the judge said, I'm limiting the injunction because all the evidence that was presented to me went to Drew Adams. And none of the evidence went to any other student. It was about any other student. But thinking back about what this case is about, uh, Judge Lagoa says, this case involves the unremarkable and nearly universal practice of separating school bathrooms based on biological sex. 
This appeal requires us to determine whether separating the use of male and female bathrooms in the public schools based on a student's biological sex violates the Equal Protection Clause and Title IX, and we hold that it does not. The dissent says, well, no, that's not what the case is about, because Drew Adams isn't challenging the right of the school to designate boys' restrooms and girls' restrooms. What he's saying is, I'm a boy, and you have to treat me as a boy. And uh, the statute says nothing about biological sex. It just says you can't discriminate based on sex. And what counts as sex for this purpose? And the dissent said that's what the issue is here. And the state of Florida recognizes Drew Adams as a boy, gave him a new birth certificate, et cetera. And the school district says, well, you know, we have an important interest here in protecting the privacy of the other boys using the restroom. But they were asked this question, it came up during discovery, and they were asked this question, and it really, I think it, it persuaded Judge Corrigan, certainly, and it just uh, persuaded the panel majority. How do we decide somebody's sex for purposes of the school? And the school has taken the position that our policy is your sex at the time you enroll in our school district, no matter when it is, whether you're uh, an elementary school transfer student, whether you're transferring in middle school, high school, at the time you enter our district, you submit your papers, you submit your birth certificate, and we take your, uh, your sex as uh, documented on these official government documents. So if Drew Adams, instead of transferring into the school district in the fourth grade, had transferred in in middle school and had already got a new birth certificate designating him as male, they would have treated him as male and he would have a right to use the boys' restrooms under their policy. So the court says they're not even treating all transgender boys the same. And they're not basing it on biological sex. They're basing it on legal sex as identified on the birth certificate at the time they enroll in the school district. And so the dissenters say the, the majority of the court's asking the wrong question. And in fact, there was expert testimony that was not seriously rebutted that uh, gender identity has a biological basis. And so to say that uh, Drew's biological sex remains female is inaccurate in many respects, that our understanding of sex is much more complex. And the interesting thing is you look at the majority decision and they cite a lot of old cases that predate our current uh, understanding of sex. They, they find old decisions to say, and sex is an immutable characteristic. Well, now that's, uh, that's a rather complex statement to make. And you can find uh, arguments on both sides as to whether sex is an immutable characteristic. What counts as sex? One of the earliest cases under Title VII of a transgender person who was uh, discharged was the Elaine case. It involved an airline pilot, a commercial airline pilot, who transitioned from male to female and was fired. And that was a Seventh Circuit case, and the Seventh Circuit said, you know, no matter what you do to try to change your outer, your outer appearance, what remains is your original sex, that sex is immutable. And there are, there are a lot of cases, and that's an old case, right? That's the case from decades ago. Uh, and we've got past that at this point. Uh, we've got to the point where in the Bostock case, the court, without much... Uh, exhibit exhibition of angst or pondering just says 
transgender. We had uh, a transgender case from the Sixth Circuit there, the Harris Funeral Home case. And they said, if you fire someone because they're transgender, because of their transgender status, that's discriminating because of their sex. And in the uh, panel decisions here, which post-date Bostock, the first was from uh, 2020, the second from 2021, the panel decision said, well, Bostock makes it pretty clear, Title IX covers gender identity because the Title IX forbids discrimination because of sex. And uh, the Supreme Court has reasoned in the Bostock case that you uh, can't discriminate based on gender identity without necessarily uh, discriminating on the basis of someone's sex. Uh, so, uh, you know, the majority opinion here, it, it's really uh, kind of strange. And uh, an additional strange thing is that Judge Thagoa, in addition to writing the opinion for the seven-member majority, wrote a separate concurring opinion with her own opinion in order to write about sports, which is not an issue in this case. And the sports cases, and we'll be talking about one of them in our next case, the sports cases are about transgender women competing and arguments that because they're quote unquote, really boys, not girls, they shouldn't be allowed to compete against cisgender girls, that it's unfair to the other girls, that it's excluding real girls from opportunities to, to win these athletic competitions. So, and of course, this is very much in the news. There's a lot of, uh, there are uh, statutes now in, in, in quite a few states that prohibit transgender girls from competing in girls' uh, athletics. And there are lawsuits challenging them. But uh, the point is here that Judge Lagoa says, in her concurring opinion, that if we were to rule for Drew Adams, we would be destroying women's sports, women's scholastic sports. And uh, first, first of all, there's no record. There's no record in this case with regard to sports, with regards to whether it's fair or it's not fair or whether uh, someone who has transitioned early enough and has not undergone through any of male puberty has an unfair advantage or not. You know, all these issues that need to be sorted out if you have a case that's really about sports, none of that. And so, you know, she's doing fact-finding. Judge uh, Goa is doing fact-finding on the basis of citing articles and stuff. There's no record. There's no testimony. There are no fact-findings by the district court as to that because that would be a case involving transgender girls, not transgender boys. And sports and restroom access are two distinct issues. And uh, by giving so much credence to the school district's privacy argument, they're also contradicting decisions from other circuits which have rejected the privacy argument in these cases. There's a few lawsuits that were brought by parent groups challenging transgender restroom policies on the grounds that the privacy rights of their children were being violated and the courts have rejected them. So uh, there is a circuit split on these issues. The question is, uh, and here it, I believe it falls to Lamp Illegal in this case, which has been representing Drew Adams. Do you go up to the Supreme Court with this? Or are there uh, problems with going up to the Supreme Court on this? Because look who's on the Supreme Court these days. You know, how should this be done? Should there be a cert petition? Or should we just let the circuit split lie there for now? Because there are other circuits. We in the fourth circuit and, and in the uh, and the seventh circuit, we have good case law, and we have even cert denials in those cases. 
but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if at least four members of the Supreme Court uh, were to grant a cert petition, uh, in this case, if Drew Adams filed a cert petition. Or they might decide, well, we like this decision, so we're not going to do a cert petition. But if someone else from another circuit litigates and goes the other way, maybe we'll grant a cert petition. One thing that we that I've been noticing, you know, you follow the Supreme Court closely, they're granting fewer and fewer cert petitions. And they're issuing fewer and fewer opinions. And as of today, as of January 12th, they have not issued any opinions for the term that began in October. No opinions have been issued yet whatsoever, mm -hmm. which must mean that the court is very split because uh, the early opinions, many of them tend to be unanimous opinions. Uh, the, the cases that take longer are the ones where the court split and so concurrences and dispense are being drafted and they're going back and forth through drafts and responding to each other's arguments and stuff. And that's why uh, a lot of the most controversial cases of a term are not announced until sometime in the spring or even the last weeks. You know, summer comes June 21st and the Supreme Court still has a week or two to issue opinions after that before they recess for the summer. And that's when cases like the Dobbs case, for example. I think the Dobbs case was, what, June 15th, something like that. So those take a long time. Uh, but the unanimous ones come out right away. But we've had no no decisions from the court. And the court seems to be deciding fewer and fewer cases. And some people would say that's a good thing because we don't like the way they've been deciding them. But uh, there it is. So in this case, we have, and uh, this is, of course, a, uh, a precedent in the, in the three states of the 11th Circuit, Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. So for now, uh, school districts evidently can do this at least in that part of the country. The dissenting opinions are worth a read. Uh, there are three dissenting opinions, uh, four dissenters, but one signing on to others. But uh, Judge Wilson, Charles Wilson, who is the Clinton appointee, pointed out numerous flaws in the reasoning and uh, specifically noted the failure of the court to give adequate deference to the fact findings of the district court, especially with respect to the issue of privacy. And Judge Wilson emphasized that the court's narrow view of biological sex fails to take account of our current knowledge about divergent sexual identities. It's so crudely reductionist that it leaves numerous interpretive problems in its wake, he says. Uh, Judge Rosenbaum joins uh, Judge Jill Pryor, no relation to William Pryor, uh, Jill Pryor's right. dissent on the constitutional issue which was the sole basis for the second panel decision. And uh, Judge Pryor's dissent, which is the lengthiest, basically picks up from the detailed panel opinions by Judge Martin and goes into great detail about why the case should have come out the other way and why the court should have followed the uh, persuasive precedents of the Fourth and Seventh Circuits in the prior cases involving transgender voice. And this opinion came out on December 30th. It was like you had to write it up in a rush to get it into the January issue of one of Well, we appreciate your careful walkthrough of such an unusual procedural history. And we know that Florida has not been in any way, shape or form a particularly affirming state for transgender and non-binary youth. So it'll be interesting to see what happens this legislative cycle as well. And to see whether there's a cert petition filed. Mm -hmm. I think they might shy away from it, but who knows? This is a tough one to predict. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, similarly, you had mentioned that we have another case that does involve transgender youth participating in sports activities. Let's come back home to the Second Circuit and talk about what's going on in Connecticut. Okay. This one is actually is one of the cases that has immediately been taken up by opponents of LGBTQ rights in their legislative battles to pass these state laws banning competition because we had a, uh, a young transgender woman in Connecticut who uh, was uh, competing and was winning swimming matches uh, against other, I guess, uh, cisgender girls. But the state of Connecticut, the Interscholastic Athletic Conference of the state of Connecticut, which sets policy for all interscholastic sports, in 2013, all the way back in 2013, long before the Obama administration took its positions on this, the conference and its member schools implemented a policy allowing transgender athletes to compete on teams consistent with their gender identity. Four female athletes took issue with this policy after they had, uh, and they were, uh, they were swimmers, I believe. They uh, didn't come in first in all of their competitions. And uh, they finished behind some of the transgender women who were competing. It seems there were two transgender women in particular who were competing and being very successful. So this time represented by Alliance Defending Freedom. And by the way, Yeshiva University in, in the Yeshiva case is represented by the Beckett Fund. Uh, this is, these are you know, right-wing, mainly religious-oriented litigation groups that style themselves as public interest groups. Uh, so ADF is representing four female athletes who brought this lawsuit challenging uh, the policy in Connecticut. And uh, they said, this violates our rights under Title IX because it, it displaces the ability of girls to compete in interscholastic events. It displaces them with boys posing as girls, basically. I mean, that's uh, sort of an article of faith among the religious right and among conservative, uh, especially conservative Republicans, that transgender girls are just boys who want a competitive advantage. And so they say they're transgender. Uh, and because you can't get surgery in most places until you're at least 18, we're talking about still uh, physically equipped as boys. Uh, they, they might be taking hormones, of course, as uh, is allowed uh, at younger ages. Uh, they might be taking puberty blockers. They might be uh, getting new birth certificates, getting name changes, etc. But as far as the people making these arguments in cases such as this one, uh, this one is Sewell, S-O-U-L-E versus Connecticut Association of Schools. They're saying, you're letting boys compete with girls. And it's unfair because boys, uh, in terms of their size and their strength and their lung capacity and everything else, have an advantage over girls in any sport, which brings those various physical characteristics into play. And their case was dismissed by the district court. And it went up to the Second Circuit. 
the suit was filed uh, in 2020, and uh, the Second Circuit issued its decision on December 16th. A unanimous panel, senior circuit judge Denny Chin wrote for the panel. And uh, I mean, they, they didn't get a panel, the plaintiffs here, that was going to be uh, automatically sympathetic to them. Uh, judge Chin, who was originally appointed to the district court by uh, President Clinton and uh, promoted to the Second Circuit by President Obama. Uh, the other judges on the panel, uh, senior circuit judge Susan Carney, who was also appointed by President Obama, and circuit judge Beth Robinson, who was appointed by President Joe Biden, who uh, is was formerly the uh, the first lesbian justice of the Vermont Supreme Court and who was the litigator who uh, started the the, the uh, battle toward marriage equality in Vermont with the Baker versus State case. She represented the plaintiffs in that case. So Beth Robinson was on this panel. So the arguments they were making were not going to get were not going to be be met with uh, with uh, great appreciation by this panel. Uh, but actually, there isn't a whole lot about the merits in this opinion because it's it's mainly about standing and mootness. I mean, one of the issues is uh, you have to look at the relief that they were asking for. They were asking the court to declare that the uh, Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference policy and the policy is implemented by its member schools violated Title IX. So they wanted a declaratory judgment. They wanted an injunction against transgender girls continuing to compete in women's uh, girls' competition. And they wanted the court to order the people in charge of keeping the records of these competitions to erase the transgender girls who had competed and raise everybody who finished below them one step up. And they were claiming that not only that uh, some girls would be displaced by transgender girls, they were also claiming that cisgender girls would suffer adverse impacts because having been beaten in competition, they wouldn't rank as highly. So their ability to become champions and to present that credential, if they wanted to, uh, to use it for employment, if they wanted to use it for college, you know, for, for getting an athletic scholarship or things of that sort, that they would be disadvantaged in various ways. This is this is how they argued, because uh, in order for it to be a case of controversy, you have to show that you have an injury and that you, an injury could be compensable by the court in some way. So they're asking the court to readjust the records of the races that they participated in. And uh, the court said, well, for one thing, there's a real mootness issue here, because by the time we're up here in the Second Circuit, they're all in college. They're not even competing anymore in sports governed by the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference's uh, uh, regulation of high school intramural, uh, intramural, intramural sports. Uh, and they said it's totally speculative how they would have done in these races if they weren't competing against these transgender girls. I mean, to just move everybody up it strikes us that you haven't proven that that's an appropriate remedy here. And uh, you haven't proven that there's going to be any adverse impact on your employment either. That's totally speculative. That's, that's off in the future. So finally, they said, 
and uh, this is interesting because this is an argument that's going to be used in the other in the other way against our side in cases that were decided in January already, uh, which you know we're already at work on the February issue of Lonus. And uh, there are some cases that have been decided uh, in the last few days, first first days of January, that make this argument that I'm about to articulate uh, against us instead of for us, and that is. In order to suffer uh, some kind of, uh, in order to claim damages, because they wanted to claim damages as well, in order to claim damages, you have to show that the school that is subject to Title IX, because it is accepting federal money, because Title IX only applies to uh, educational institutions that receive federal funding of some sort, and virtually every public school does. Uh, have some some form of federal financial assistance. So you have to show that uh, at the time you received the federal funding, you were on notice that it would violate Title IX for you to allow transgender girls to compete in girls' sports. And in fact, since the Obama administration sent that dear colleague letter out, they had the exact opposite notice. They had noticed that the federal government considered that transgender girls have a right. Now, the Obama dear colleague letter was supplanted by the Trump administration, but they didn't say the opposite. They just said that it had been done without adequate consideration and research, and they withdrew it. Uh, they eventually came out with something. They they reacted to the Bostock decision by saying it only applies to Title VII which uh, many, many courts now have applied the reasoning of the Bostock decision to Title IX. Uh, so that's not a, a winning argument for them, unless it gets to the Supreme Court, it turns into a winning argument. We don't know what's going to happen at the Supreme Court when they're finally faced with a Title IX transgender case, which is why filing a cert petition in the Drew Adams uh, case from the 11th Circuit is a gamble. But in this case, the court says, we affirm the district court. Uh, basically for the reasons of the district court. We, uh, they they uh, expressed how Bostock could be used to protect, protect transgender athletes. And uh, it seems likely here, since uh, Alliance Defending Freedom is representing the plaintiffs, they file Supreme Court cert petitions almost automatically when they lose cases in the lower courts. And they have a fairly good record in getting them granted. So if the Drew Adams case doesn't get up and bring the transgender issue to the Supreme Court, the Sewell case may. I would expect them, uh, I, I would expect that they would probably decide it's not worth the effort to seek on-bank review in the Second Circuit when you look at the circuit lineup of, uh, of judges. Uh, so they may go directly and, and petition the Supreme Court. There's no requirement to seek on-bank review before petitioning the Supreme Court. So I wouldn't be surprised if this case goes up, but the Supreme Court might decide, well, this went off on issues like mootness and stuff like that. It doesn't present the issue centrally. Uh, the, uh, the other case, the, uh, the Drew Adams case against St. John's uh, County Schools presents uh, the Title IX case pretty directly. So we'll see. Uh, it's, it's interesting that uh, transgender law has emerged as the most interesting and active part of LGBTQ law now. Uh, we, of course, we're still getting sexual orientation cases, especially discrimination cases, uh, but they tend to be more about the facts than about uh, the law now. 
because uh, the Supreme Court has settled that sexual orientation discrimination violates Title VII. So employment discriminations, we get lots of them, but we tend not to have a lot of uh, big deal decisions because they tend to go off on procedural issues or on proof issues, pleading issues, especially the pro se cases, uh, which are usually heavily afflicted with pleading issues and deficiencies. So they get tossed out early. So those are our, our three cases for the month. There's been such a disproportionate response against transgender high school athletes in terms of the media coverage and the attack bills and the cases. There's a lovely 2021 ESPN article that kind of breaks down the numbers that we're really talking about less than half a percent of high school athletes are transgender. And there's even a quote from the Connecticut uh, Interscholastic Athletic Conference Executive Director that he states, you know, what was very telling for me was a comment by the parents who said, we know that there's other transgender girls running, but we don't care about them because they're not winning. <laughs> yeah, this is, uh, this is it's sort of bizarre. Another thing about the, the transgender issue, and it depends like which drudge you're before, uh, and it depends on the quality of the evidence puts in and the expert testimony that's put in. But there's a startling lack of nuance in many cases, and certainly in the arguments taking place in state legislatures, a, a lack of nuance and assuming that when you say transgender boy or transgender girl, you're talking about a monolithic group of people who share all the same characteristics. Uh, when it seems that it's pretty clear that it depends how early in life they identify, how early in life they are diagnosed with gender dysphoria, uh, how far they go, how early they are, and how far they go in transition. Are puberty blockers being used? Uh, and uh, has someone gone through full puberty? Uh, and and this is this is an issue. Uh, you know, to what extent is there an unfairness, a categorical unfairness? Because that's the argument that the uh, people opposing allowing transgender people in sports. That's the argument they're making. They're saying it's unfair. They're, they're not worried about allowing transgender boys to compete and, uh, because they say, well, they're, uh, they've got an uphill battle because uh, competing against cisgender boys who have been through male puberty, and they haven't. I mean, they've had, they, they're identified as women at birth. Now they've been getting testosterone uh, as part of their transition. But uh, if it didn't start early enough, they uh, may be at a severe disadvantage. Now, there was an interesting op-ed piece uh, early this year in the New York Times by a transgender man who, who is a competitive swimmer, is a Yale University, and started out competing on the women's team, but then decided uh, as, as his transition was uh, progressing, I really should be on the men's team next year. And his times swimming on the girls' team were good enough that he could walk onto the men's team. He didn't have to qualify again because he actually is faster than some of the men that he's competing against, even though he was uh, he was what uh, the people in St. John's County would call a biolog biological girl. So, uh, and he said, uh, you know, I made this decision for myself. I know that I may be at a disadvantage against some of the cisgender men against whom I am competing and swimming. But it doesn't feel right to be on the women's 
I identify as I might not do as well. Very interesting situation. The, the logic just truly does not carry water here to continue with our swimming theme. Yes, and it doesn't carry hormones either. Keep it a liquid theme. Although I, I guess there are also hormones that you have pills these days and stuff. It's not all liquid. But uh, we want to conclude with our up note segment. But this time, instead of what we normally do, what we want to talk about is a very notable change that's taking place with LGBT law notes. And that is that uh, William Rold, Bill Rold, who has been our uh, reporter on prisoner litigation for more than 10 years now. And he contacted me. He said, you know, I see you're doing these prisoner cases. And I think with the, the background, the expertise I have, I think we could do a lot more with the prisoner cases. And I'm willing to volunteer to do the prisoner cases. He didn't know what he was letting himself in for. Because now in a typical month, we, we may have as many as a dozen prisoner cases, some of which will write full articles and, and many of them under prisoner litigation notes. Uh, sometimes a lengthy one paragraph summary. But the point is that he has a lot of experience in that field and he brought a lot of insight into what was happening that I couldn't really communicate myself because I was not familiar with it. I was going based on what I was reading in the cases. And he's been doing that for 10 years and he has retired from active practice, law practice. And he said to me, you know, I'm ready. It's, it's quite a burden doing this every month now. It's very time consuming especially with all the effort he put into it. Uh, he, he was going on uh, online to check out uh, the dockets and to read suit papers and things like that. He wasn't just writing these articles always just on the basis of the court opinions. And even uh, was stimulated to do some amicus briefs, uh, which were filed uh, on behalf of Legal in the Supreme Court. And we also did an amicus brief together in a case uh, down in Florida uh, the got a district judge to change her decision, uh, she, who had adopted uh, the magistrate's decision and uh, changed her mind and reassigned the case to another magistrate uh, because of some points that Bill came up with uh, that showed that the magistrate had goofed up on the law, had, had uh, extended immunity to a contractor that was providing the health care, uh, that was uh, supervising the prison. This was like a, a contract prison in the state of Florida. And they allowed the contractor to claim immunity from certain claims that were brought by the prisoner. And it turns out that there's a Florida statute that says that prison contractors may not claim sovereign immunity if they're sued uh, for, uh, for negligent uh, management to the prison that and results in uh, harm to the prisoner. So he's, he's done remarkable things. And we know that uh, a lot of people have come to rely on on those uh, prisoner litigation notes. So Bill is retiring and uh, the complete uh, prisoner litigation uh, coverage in the January issue is the last issue that he's done. Uh, basically, we agreed that uh, he was retiring as of the end of December. So the December cases are written up for the January issue of War Notes. Uh, so I'm not exactly sure what prisoner litigation notes is gonna look like going forward. Uh, it may be much more condensed. It, it depends on uh, what we come up with. But I've already accumulated a handful of cases for the February issue, and I have no one to assign them to. <laughs> so 
uh, one thing that we've been trying to do is to publicize this and see if there are people who are regular listeners to the podcast or readers of Law Notes who might have an interest in stepping up, not necessarily to take on the entire task, but uh, to at least do some prisoner litigation cases on a regular basis, uh, because we get plenty of them every month. So uh, if people are interested in that, do contact the gal. Check out our website. There's contact information there to get in touch. And uh, we salute Bill Rolls. I think we should, we should uh, do something for him at our uh, gala this year uh, to recognize the contribution that he's made over the past 10 years as a volunteer doing our prisoner litigation coverage and doing it superbly. We certainly owe Bill a debt of gratitude. It's been interesting to think through his work in our conversation today because it kind of, for me, pulled some of the earlier threads in terms of what we were seeing with the transgender youth restroom policies is reminiscent of the so-called freeze frame policies that were being litigated in cases involving incarcerated transgender and non-binary people. We've seen that same kind of progression of what types of cases were predominantly being heard affecting members of the LGBTQ plus community shifting over the years. And as you pointed out earlier, the most interesting cases on both fronts seem to be involving transgender and non-binary litigants. So again, to echo your your gratitude and your thanks and also your call to action we really do need one or more authors who have a special place in their heart for this type of legal work to continue his legacy so i guess that's a wrap for january well professor leonard thank you so much for joining us today and thank you as always to our listeners I will be stepping away from podcast hosting duties for the months of February and March 2023, but I promise I leave you in the best of hands. Former Executive Director Matt Skinner will be guest hosting our Law Notes episodes while I'm away on parental leave, so please enjoy my absence and continue to like, share, and find us on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your favorite programs.